Before you have a seat, stand up. <laughs> you see how much power you have in the front. <laughs> it's amazing. Uh, what I want to do this morning before you have a seat is I, I want to read the creed as we jump in. I don't want you to read with me. I just want you to pause and to listen. Listen, listen to the rhythms and the cadence of the Apostles' Creed, and then I will pray. And then you can have a seat, okay? Listen to these words. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Whence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Father, we love you. I pray that this creed would take root in our lives as you use it to guide the direction of our hearts and the direction of this body of believers. I'm thankful for my brothers and sisters that this is the playing field that you've given us, and together we believe this over our lives and our faith. We love you, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, have a seat. Well, good morning. My name's Stephen. I'm one of the elders here, and um, I pulled in last night from family vacation at about 7 o'clock, and um, woohoo! We have three kids, if, if you don't know us, uh, all uh, seven, almost five, and one, so I need a vacation, and uh, we're looking forward to that. Uh, this morning, we're going to start in Isaiah chapter 52, but before I do that, um, I'm going to just a couple of things that I want us to be mindful of as we dive in. If you're new to the branch, we traditionally preach through Scripture exegetically, which all that means, it's a fancy way to say, we preach line by line through the Bible. We've been going through Hebrews uh, during the school year, and um, over the summer we decided to take a break. And this isn't us saying we're not preaching exegetically. This is us saying this is a very important document that we need to really wrestle with, and it needs to guide the foundation of our doctrine. And what's beautiful about this particular creed is that we know the creed. Well, we may not know it, but we know of it, right? Uh, the churches down the street know it, regardless of denominations. The churches on the other side of the world know it, regardless of denomination. And that's a beautiful thing that honestly should be celebrated. There's not enough harmony, there's not enough unity among the Christian church today. So we use a lot of things to divide each other. We can come around this as something to unite us. And uh, it really does give us the, the, the rules of Christian faith, the playing field, if you will, of what it looks like to be a Christian. Okay? So uh, Tozer once said, A.W. Tozer once said that the most important thing about you is, do you know this quote, is what you think about when you think about anybody. God. The most important thing about you and the most important thing about me is what you think about when you think about God. So now I want to take that quote, kind of flip it over on its head a little bit. If theology is the study of God, then the most important thing about us is our theology, is what we think about when we think about God. So as we dive into this, I don't know what week we're in, 
um, which I probably should. I know which week I'm supposed to be teaching. I just don't know what week number we're in. We're in the suffered under Pontius Pilate week, okay? Just for those of you who are questioning. But theology matters. It matters a lot. So I want to read a couple quotes from John Leith, who um, kind of compiled a bunch of documents around not just the Apostles' Creed, but the Nicene Creed, the Creed of Chalcedon, um, the Constantinople, all the creeds and councils throughout church history. He kind of gathered some of those core documents and compiled them together into a, a book that's not very small. Okay? Listen to what he says. He says, To be sure, God is love, as well as truth, will as well as mind. While God may be truth, truth is not God. Yet if God is to be known and served, he must be known and served with the mind as well as with the heart and the will. Theology, and thus the creeds, are the service of God through the life of the mind and are indispensable to any other service which may be rendered to God. He keeps going. He says, The theological reflections that are embodied in creeds become part of the theological memory of the church and are the source and context for future theological decisions. None of the great creeds of the church were produced independently of what the church thought and said in previous generations. Here's why I love what we're doing this summer, is we're saying here in 2021 that there is a history that goes far beyond us, and we're rooting ourselves in that history. And this morning, as we walk through the suffered under Pontius Pilate line and the was crucified, dead, and buried line, we are taking a step into Christian historical nature. We are going back in time to a very specific time when Pilate was the governor of Judea. Okay? So if you have uh, your Bibles, we're going to start in Isaiah 52. Also, if you're looking at me and wondering what is on my hand, the ocean stole my ring. Okay? So don't let that distract you. It's a real thing. Megan and I have been married for almost uh, 12 years. We just celebrated 11 in May, so not almost 12. We're going to make it to 12, but um, we're not there yet. Our kids were devastated when my ring fell off and thought we weren't married anymore. And so, um, so they made a ring, and thus I will wear it until I can get a new one. Or until one of you go to Panama City and find it. Can you give it back, please? Uh, I think that's what Facebook is supposed to do. I'm not sure. So anyways, this is uh, Isaiah 52. Okay, I'm going to start in verse 13. Bear with me. Uh, we're going to read for a bit, but I think it's important for us as we dive into the Apostles' Creed uh, this morning. This is uh, Isaiah 52, verse 13. It says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up. Talking specifically about Jesus. This is a prophetic uh, prophecy of Jesus to come. He shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his presence was so marred beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. Chapter 53, verse 1. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid, hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. 
Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Maybe underline healed. Verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. And like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He, was put, he has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted as righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death. And was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. That is the beginning of Christ's work, right? And this morning, as we move along in the Apostles' Creed, it reads something like this. I believe in Jesus Christ, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. This I believe, right? It sounds a little different than the beginning of the creed, doesn't it? In the beginning it says, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth. These are declarative statements of God's character, of his very nature. And then we take on a Trinitarian perspective. And I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. And he suffered under Pontius Pilate. It seems a little odd right there, doesn't it? Just a little bit. And for the first time, the writers, whoever they were, I don't believe it was the the apostles, by the way. Could be, may not be, we don't know, so it's not a big deal. But for the first time, they take almost like a little time out. In all the other creeds, the Nicene Creed and the Creed of Chalcedon, they just say suffered and died, okay? But this particular creed they place in a historical context. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. And why is that important? Because we can believe a lot of things about Jesus, And I believe that in their wisdom, they knew that one day Jesus would just become another character in the grand narrative that's talked from generation to generation, almost like folklore. But if we can place him in historical time, if we can say, no, it was Jesus of Nazareth, the one who was born of Mary, who suffered at the hand of Pontius Pilate, we know that Pontius Pilate was a governor of Judea. And we know that he lived and that he died We know that he served as governor for about 10 years, okay? Right in the middle of Jesus' crucifixion, 
Okay? So by putting this suffered under Pontius Pilate, we know that Jesus is a historical figure, not just a theological one, not a distant one that can't be known. He was here. He walked the earth, and he lived during Pontius Pilate's rule. Okay? That's why this is important. All right? So I think we have to ask a couple of questions. The first one is, who is Pontius Pilate? Okay? We've already established that he was the governor, the Roman governor of Judea. Okay? Pontius Pilate specifically um, is the one who declared or asked the question, are you the king of the Jews? Right? During his crucifixion and the march up Golgotha, uh, Pilate is the one who before that, during what, you know, whatever, a quasi-trial, um, declares, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus' response is, you, I am who you say I am. Right? It sounds very... A historical. He's also the one that says, I find no guilt in this man. Okay, and then what does he do? He sends him off to Herod. Herod doesn't know what he wants to do with him, so he sends him back to Pilate. And at this point, Pilate's under fire. Okay, and like any good politician, when the crowds get loud, they crave, they cave, they crater, right? They don't know what to do, so they got to do what the people say. And that's what happens. He says, I find no guilt in this man. And in, in that statement, it's a declarative statement. Right? It's not a question mark. It is, I find no guilt in Jesus of Nazareth. The things that you say he's done, I don't see them as being offensive to the law. And in that moment, Pilate shows virtue. He shows morality, even. And he shows just a hint of courage. Right? But as they get louder and louder, he caves. And Pilate becomes what many would say is the greatest coward in human history. And he says, instead of, here, here's the reality. If Pilate doesn't hand Jesus over to the people, the people were going to come get Pilate. They were going to take Jesus one way, or the, one way or another. We know that to be true, okay? But Pilate is who God the Father, in his sovereign will, chose to use in this particular time period to be the instrument, to be the vehicle of Jesus' deliverance to his death, okay? So Pontius Pilate is an important figure. It's also important to realize and not to raise a highbrow that we are Pontius Pilate, okay? We are also the people begging uh, for him to let him go so we can kill him, all right? So let's don't throw uh, Pilate under the bus or under the stage, which, by the way, was broken this morning. I stepped on it and flipped the thing up uh, while my kids were on it, which was cool, um, right? But we're not going to put Pilate under there and then fix the leg and crush him because we are him. We are him, we don't know what to do with Jesus when culture collides, when, when the things of the world start crashing down. We don't know what to do. We throw our hands up and we say, you take them, right? And in a tradition, an annual tradition, the pilot goes before the people and says, who do you want? Do you want Jesus or do you want Barabbas? And what do they say? Give us Barabbas. Give it to, give him. We want him. Kill him. Crucify Jesus. And in that moment, the writing was on the wall, and Jesus knew it, I believe. And that was the beginning of what would become probably the greatest suffering in human history. Okay? Um, the, if you've seen Passion of the Christ, maybe you have, maybe you haven't. Um, I don't, this is not a theological statement. This is just, it's a movie. You can watch it. Okay? Mel Gibson was involved. Take it for what it is. All right? I was a uh, freshman in college when the movie came out, 2004. Okay, um, and I was at Young Harris playing baseball, and our coach decided it'd be a good idea to take a bunch of pagan baseball players to go see uh, the Passion of the Christ, right? And at this point in my life, I had actually started to take my faith pretty serious. So I was like, 
I want to see the movie. Like, I feel like I need to see it. I feel like it will help me to understand Scripture better. I feel like it will help me understand just the details of Christ's suffering. And you get in there, and you got a bunch of, like, 30, 18-year-olds who, you know, half of them are probably out of their mind, and the other half just don't want to be there, right? And you're sitting there, and you're watching these scenes unfold, and you realize that no matter how much cinematography goes into the movie, they cannot capture the gruesome suffering that Jesus went through. It was gory, it was bloody, it was horrific, and that's why the Apostles' Creed captures it. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. Isaiah 52 and 53 lays it out pretty graphically, doesn't it? More graphically than Mel Gibson could. And I think what we need to understand is oftentimes we we rush through the suffering of Jesus to get to the death of Jesus so we can get to the resurrection of Jesus so that we can find our hope that he's going to come back and that we will one day be made whole, don't we? And we miss the suffering part because the reality is If our lives are to mirror the life of Christ in what we call sanctification, we are in a season of suffering, right? Now we have hope, like let's don't skip out on Easter, okay? I know it comes, comes every year, every Sunday. We're talking about the resurrection here, so if you're new to the branch, we're not always like just talking about Jesus getting beat up, okay? We're usually celebrating Jesus' resurrection in an empty tomb and the death of death and all the things that make us, the hair on our arms stand up and we get excited. And sometimes people say amen. It doesn't happen very often, but it does occasionally happen, okay? There we go right? But what we miss out on is we miss out on so much of the details of what Jesus, as being fully human, walked through, okay? Yes, he was fully God, but he felt pain the way that you and I feel pain, right? And when the 39 lashes go and tear his flesh, it hurt. It was painful, and he bled actual blood, and he sweat actual sweat. And I think what we need to remember is that throughout all of Jesus' suffering, he could have and yet didn't escape. And so oftentimes in our world today, as soon as things get just a little bit uncomfortable, we try to run. We try to escape. Okay? I want to read to you from Matthew 27 real quick, and this will give us a better understanding of Pontius Pilate. It says, Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Verse 13. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Skip down to verse 24. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, his blood be on us and on our children. Thanks for that. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Pilate is not innocent. Okay? Pilate is not innocent. Just because he washes his hands does not remove him from the death and suffering of Jesus Christ. His suffering was brutal and extremely painful, but his suffering climaxes in the ninth hour of the crucifixion, okay? And I want to read that, all right? This is uh, Matthew 27, verse 45. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And at about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in that moment, 
Jesus felt the greatest pain that the earth has ever felt. And that was distance from God the Father. Right? And I think what we miss out on this statement in particular is that the distance was our distance. Right? Jesus' death was our death that he took on himself. But more than just the death and the pain and the suffering and all that was God the Father for the first time in eternity and the last time turned his back. And in that moment, Jesus felt the greatest suffering in human history. Verse 47, some of the bystanders hearing it said this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. And this in John chapter 19 is when Jesus declares, it is finished. He takes his last breath. And that was it. The suffering was over. Or it had just begun, right? And for three days, he lay in a tomb. Or next week, he descended into hell. Gabe's preaching that. Good luck, right? And we know that Sunday's coming, right? We know the resurrection's coming. That's what's so beautiful on being on this side of it. But you know who didn't know it? The people who are running to his grave. Mary, Martha, the idiot disciples who finally figured out that he was real, okay? They go running like a race, like, I'm going to beat you. No, I'm going to beat you. No, I'm here first. And they show up, and Mary and Martha are already there, right? And the stone had rolled away. And there's nothing but folded linens, a shroud of a dead man that's no longer there. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified. He died a real death. And he was buried in a real tomb. A tomb that we believe is fully empty. This is the foundation of Christian hope. This is where we place our faith, right? In uh, Acts 16, when uh, the jailer, this is when the church of Philippi is just getting its real good start, right? You want to see church planting done well, read Acts or come to the branch, okay? But read Acts first, all right? And the jailer is talking to Paul and, and others who are there and says, what must I do to be saved? What do they say? Believe. But believe in what? Believe in Jesus as Lord. Because only a Lord can lead a, leave a tomb empty. Only a Lord can walk through, in a capital L Lord, by the way, okay? Only the Lord can walk through what Pilate put him through, what we put him through, and come out on the other side and say, the seat next to the Father is now yours, right? That's inheritance. That is salvation, Paul, uh, in 2 Corinthians, says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Through suffering comes glory. And through glory, glory is the presence of God. Fully and beautifully unadulterated. There's no sin. There's no foul. There's no bad odor. There's no fighting. There's no denomination. Okay? There's glory, the presence of God, the way it was in the garden. I think it's important for us to remember that as Christ was crucified, dead, and buried, that it was all real, right? That it was, it was a long time ago, but it was all real. Salvation is beautiful and brutal. It's glorious and gory. It's incredibly sad. Right? I mean, watch the movie. Or read it. Just read it in the Gospels. It's in all of them. Pilate is in all four Gospels. Read the stories. 
It's incredibly sad. And yet at the same time, it's immensely satisfying. With the death of one man, satisfaction for all was made to God the Father. That's a beautiful story, isn't it? It is. This is where usually people get like, yeah, it is, and get excited, but we don't do that. We don't do that. We don't do that. It's all right. Um, go, go in your Bibles to uh, John 19, real quick. Let's look at verse um, 38. One of the things that the Apostles' Creed is trying to do is to establish a theological foundation for all Christians throughout time. But in this particular stanza, we said it earlier, we're trying to place it in a historical context because it matters. Verse 38, John 19. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus, bound bound it in linen cloths with the spices as the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. As we come to an end this morning, I think it's important for us to remember that God's very consistent, okay, from the beginning to the end, all right? This is his promise. He really can't do anything but be consistent. It's part of his character. It's who he is, okay? But one of the things that you see throughout Christianity throughout from the beginning of time, human history, okay, let's just put it in the grand scheme, creation to the end, is that God cares a lot about gardens, okay, and I don't want to get all flowery and floral and all that kind of stuff, I I mean, come on, right, but he does care a lot about gardens, and he uses gardens as the imagery of of a better world, he uses a garden as imagery of the presence of God, right, there you find him, there you are with him, there he is with you, Okay, in the beginning, right, Adam and Eve were in the garden. Everything was pretty well perfect, okay? And then it wasn't. And then there was all this trying and fighting to try to get back to the garden. No matter what we did, we couldn't do it. We could kill all kinds of animals and do all these rituals and sacrifices. And we did everything we could possibly think of to earn our way back into the garden. We do that still, right? We do it with... um, we do it with church attendance. We do it with whatever. You put it, we do it with the chronological Bible reading plan. How's that going? Yeah. The year's half over. There's your encouragement, right? We, we put all these things, all these laws in place to say, this is what it looks like to be a Christian. And every time we do one of those things or we check the box, our heart becomes a little bit more immune, doesn't it? It becomes a little bit more challenging, becomes a little less fulfilling, a little less fruitful, a little less faithful, and then what happens? You put it away. And, and that's kind of it, right? That's kind of become the, the Christian rhythm in 2021. I think the Apostle Creed calls us to something different. I think the Apostle Creed calls us back to the garden. 
where there is work to be done, right? There is faith. There is the presence of God. But more than that, we come to the text, the Bible. We come to things like the Apostles' Creed and others with a renewed vision, with a reinvigoration, with a desperation in pursuit of holiness, in pursuit of the presence of God. Um, I'm going to do something. This is really bold. Um, It's not that bold because I just said it was bold. But have you guys ever seen one of these before? This is the Baptist hymnal. Uh, For those of you who didn't know, we are a Baptist church. Before we walk out, let me read something real quick, okay? Um, I have one of these on my bookshelf, and I found it this morning um, as I was getting ready. One of the the things that kept coming back to me this week, um, which it's much better writing a sermon at the beach um, than doing it at home. So if you ever get the chance, do that. But I kept coming back to uh, a hymn that Isaac Watts wrote, and um, it's called When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. And you might have heard it, and people have tried to redo it, but I felt like it was important just to, I don't know, read it from here, okay? Um, This is hymn 144, in case you didn't know, all right? Listen to what it says. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the prince of glory died, my riches gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow, mingled down. Did e'er, e apostrophe e-r, did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown. Listen to this. This is the last verse. Where the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. These are uh, beautiful words that, frankly, we should know. We should remember them. Just like the Apostles' Creed, these are important words, words that we should know, words that we should remember. Though he suffered, he was a servant. Though he was crucified, he is fully whole. Though he died, he lives. And though he was buried, the tomb is now empty. And all of those things are true for you and they're true for me. Because Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified, dead, and buried. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We believe these words to be true. We pray that the rhythms of the creed would echo in our hearts and mind, not just today because we're here and talking about the Apostles' Creed, but throughout our lives. Would you help us uh, to remember that in, in moments of, of suffering that Christ suffers alongside us, that we are never alone, that in the midst of the dark and the night and the loneliness that you are there and that the church is there. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters this morning that as they come in looking for uh, 
solace, looking for reprieve, looking for uh, to be refreshed and renewed, that you would use the words of Isaac Watts, the words of the Apostles' Creed, the words of Isaiah, the words of Matthew and John to renew our hearts, and to renew our minds towards you. Help us to think well about who you are, about what you've done. And when the haunting question creeps into our mind, what must I do to be saved? Help us to remember to believe in the Lord Jesus. Would you give us that kind of faith? Would you give us that kind of freedom? We love you and we pray in Jesus' beautiful name. Amen.